of your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, as we return to our series, Strength for Today, Hope for Tomorrow, here in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, and this is the Word of God. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with, with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're glad that we do have this morning your word that is true, that it's certain, that it stands forever. So we're asking your spirit to help us grasp it, Father understand it, Father, to rejoice in it, we would pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sitting home Monday just a little early for lunch, I spent the morning working on this passage. And I was wondering how to frame it, because quite uh, frankly, some kind of find it hard to understand uh, the um, uh, a celebration of the destruction of Babylon, a clapping of the hands of the people of God. Uh, as smoke rises up from Babylon. Uh, and twin truths are at work. Uh, eternal punishment is a very serious and sobering uh, reality for those who embrace their sin and reject God. Yet God's wrath is an expression of His righteous anger and perfect justice in this universe. So I was thinking, you know, how to approach this? So I pull into the driveway and I get a call from Jack Sweeney about a PCA church school uh, shooting in Nashville near his daughter's home. Well, these four people dead. Went straight in the house. I called Mindy and she sent out that prayer alert and Becky turned on the news. And I watched with heartbreak and I must admit with anger. Uh, my heart was broken for the parents and the families of these children and three staff members. Uh, and the pain of the shooter's family. Even as I was thinking about our school here and, and thinking about uh, LCA across the street, and I had five grandchildren between the two places. Um, 
And then my mind raced to the, the depth of evil in this world. A world continually sliding into the bottomless cauldron of cruelty and hate and senseless violence. And therefore, a, a longing for God to bring justice. So I realized that what I was wrestling with in this text uh, collided with real-life events taking place around our world. So it's not just this shooting, but it's, it's the children dying on our streets in America every day from gunfire. It's the senseless war against Ukraine. It's the pure evil of Vladimir Putin and, and Chinese President Xi. It's the persecution of the church, particularly in Nigeria, where 27 Christians were, were executed by Muslim terrorists in March alone. It's the media and medical community's fixation on providing trans surgeries for children. It's political leaders don't have the backbone or the intellect to know what a male and a female is. It's the legalization of bestiality in Spain. It's a attack on preborn children. It's a defiant and arrogant Supreme Court uh, that created a new definition of marriage in the family. And all of these are real-world evils, and they're evidence of humanity's great rebellion against the triune God. They're all evidence that the battle that we face uh, is not against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. The real sickness uh, in our nation and world cannot be cured by more laws and harsh rhetoric, cannot be cured by guns or technology or wishful thinking, or holding hands together. Now, our nation, our world have a spiritual sickness brought about by the rejection of God and God's truth and God's ways and God's Messiah, a defiance of God as creator and as king and as savior. So go back in time for a moment to the streets of Jerusalem. During the springtime of about 30 A.D., it's the Sunday before Passover and the self-educated rabbi who's been traveling through the Judean countryside, teaching like nobody's ever taught and doing great miracles, is arriving in the cities, coming down the Mount of Olives. And crowds are beginning to line the streets as the news cascades through the city. Jesus of Nazareth is coming to imitate David's son Solomon. This Jesus is riding on a, in the town on a donkey. And the hope of Zechariah 9 fills the air. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Uh, is he humble and mounted on a donkey on the cold, the foal of a donkey? So people are, are putting down their cloaks. Children are waving palm branches. Uh, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There seems to be genuine joy and, and perhaps real hope. At long last, the, the son of David comes to overthrow the Romans. But while the crowds rejoice, the religious leaders are, are filled with anger and they're seething with rage. They do not want the crowds to praise Jesus. With indignation, they demand that Jesus silence the crowds. His reply, well, if I did that, the rocks themselves would cry out in praise. And the great reality the triumphal entry pointed to is that Jesus will triumph, Jesus will save us, Jesus will be king, 
Jesus will be praised. But it wasn't just this week's events and Palm Sunday that tugged at me. It was the, we just finished our mission conference. And then we, we said the reasons missions exist is because worship doesn't. Psalm 2 tells us that even as the nations rebelled against God, He is not deterred and He follows through with His plan to install His Son as King on Zion, His holy hill. And that this triumphant King will rule the nations and demand our worship. And our text today in Revelation gives us a lens to see these things together. Palm Sunday, our world's bent towards evil, missions, and hope. It helps us we see the evil in the world, an evil that, that angers us, an evil that fills us with tears, yet a hope that one day God will make all things right and allows us to anticipate that triumph in history and contemplate the eternal worship of Jesus Christ. So Revelation 19 is the original hallelujah course. It's the first time that the word hallelujah is used in the New Testament. And it's the only place it's used. And it's here in Revelation 19. You can find the term 24 times in the book of Psalms. It's written as a separate word there, halal, praise, and then Yah for Yahweh, the Lord. Uh, for short, and, and so uh, 10 of those 24 uses are in the last uh, five chapters of the Psalms, a, an explosion of praise. Psalm 150 ends with the word hallelujah. So why the sudden explosion of praise here, of hallelujahs? Let's, let's, let's go to the text and see. Let me just say the broad answer to our question I mean, maybe the short answer he could say amen and he'd be done is, 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 a, is the command of Revelation 18.20. In the midst of the world's mourning and lament over the end of Babylon, the end of the city of man, a voice interrupts with instruction to the people of God, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given you judgment for you against her. A rejoicing, a celebration... A hallelujah chorus is called for because God's finally answered that question of Revelation 6.10. Oh, sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long before you avenge the deaths of James and Stephen, of Latimer and Ridley, of Jim Elliot and Nate Saint? Of the six in Nashville and the 27 in Nigeria. How long? How long? Well, that all takes place in Revelation 18 as God judges. And so what we have here in Revelation 19, as we turn the page, is the celebration that follows. What I want us to do is try to take in the whole of what John sees and hears because it's, it's the total picture that makes the greatest impact even more than the individual parts. And again, notice that it starts with John admitting the, he has a human limitation to describe what he sees and hears in heaven with earthly vocabulary. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. What seems to be? And it sounds like a great multitude joining in. And what are they declaring? Hallelujah, 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, who has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Tomorrow night, sometime shortly after 11, there's going to be a huge celebration, either in Connecticut or in San Diego. Uh, the national champion is going to be uh, crowned in basketball. Well, our text has a greater celebration. God is the champion of the world, my friends, uh, and indeed of the universe, and we're to join in celebrating the triumph of God's judgment in history. For this is very practical for us, because if today's headlines fill us with despair, and they do, if they bring tears to our eyes as we contemplate human suffering, and they do, if they fill us with righteous indignation as the glory of God is denigrated, and they do, then brothers and sisters, this hallelujah chorus is for us. Very simply put, God wins. It's not a question of if Babylon falls. It's only a question of when. All opposition to God. All mocking of God. All defiance of God. All rebellion against God. All persecution of His people. It will be over with. And God's triumph will be celebrated. All tears will be gone. The joy will be great. And once more they'll cry out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Last week we pointed to the famous words of Robert Moffat about the villages of, of Africa without Christ. They could see the smoke of a thousand villages where no one had ever heard of Jesus. And friends, unless they hear, and upon hearing believe the good news, then the last smoke that rises from those villages and cities around the world will be this smoke that goes up forever and ever. This speaks to the finality of judgment. Satan and his minions have no chance for a comeback. The party's over for them and for all who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and instead embrace their own sinfulness. And then we hear the word of affirmation. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Now if you're counting, that's three hallelujahs, alright? God's been saving that word for this chapter. This point in the book. And quite clearly, all of heaven's rejoicing in the triumph of the Lamb. And friends, we will be part of that. We're the saints mentioned there. And that's when we hear again a loud voice from the throne. A voice came saying, praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Why is that? We'll go back to our call to worship. Tim who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, we live in a world where earthly monarchs seek to be seen as great. King Louis XIV of France was one such ruler. He actually preferred to go by the title Louis the Great. All right, he was the monarch who said, I am the state. 
court was the most magnificent in Europe. When he died in 1715, after that 72-year reign, his funeral was the most spectacular. His body lay in a golden coffin there at St. Denis Basilica. To dramatize his greatness, he'd given orders that the cathedral would be very dimly lit and a single candle would be right above the casket to draw attention to that. And everyone waited in silence as the service began and then Bishop Massillon began to speak. And slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle. And he said, only God is great. Friends, God alone is great. His greatness is revealed in His creation around us. Spring in all of its magnificent colors displays God's beauty and God's glory. The heavens, the skies declare His power and splendor. We're to praise Him. But most of all, we're to see the greatness of God displayed in His Son, His incarnation, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension. Again, the world's greatest problem has never been war. It's never been about gun or any other weapon. Uh, the world's greatest problem has never been about laws or politics. The world's greatest problem has always been sin, a rebellion against God. The 11th century theologian Anselm Canterbury was recounting a discussion he had with a man, maybe appropriately named Bozo. Um, uh, and he was trying to, uh, to, to grasp why the death of Christ was really the heart of the reason for the incarnation. And Anselm finally told him, you have not yet considered the greatness of the weight of sin. And friends, that's it. When he comments on Anselm's quote, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said, for only when we grasp the many-sided character and depth of our sinfulness can we come to understand and appreciate the wonder of the multidimensional work of Christ for us. Indeed, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Get back to the mission conference. We are made to worship. And the proper object of that worship is Jesus and Him only. And given the sinfulness of humanity, we must share with people the gospel of Jesus Christ so they too may worship Him. Because Jesus is the great champion. And we find ourselves invited to the greatest celebration ever, the great wedding feast as eternity begins. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out. Can you imagine what that sounds like? Like the voice of a great multitude. It starts softly, the flow of the streams, and it builds until it sounds like roaring thunder. And at that point, the fourth hallelujah thunders out to begin this hymn of praise that ends with an invitation. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the battle's over. The victory's won. And when we sing the hallelujah chorus from Handel, we always announce that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And here it is, and the only proper response is to rejoice and to exalt and give him glory. I mean, what a blessed people we are. Our tears that flowed this week will now be wiped away. Our champion Jesus stands before us and the marriage of the Lamb is about to take place. Friends, this speaks to the, to the intimacy and the love and the joy between Christ and His people. And we are called to say yes to the dress, all right? It's described in two ways. First, it's, it's in dressing ourselves, making ourselves ready. Then we're told the fine linen has been provided because it's the righteous deeds of the saints. It's given to us. Bern Poitras gives the most succinct understanding of that. The saints are distinguished from the world by their righteous deeds. But at the same time, these acts are not the product of autonomous effort, but they're planned and empowered by God, Ephesians 2.10. Now, properly clothed, the greatest, most desired invitation of all time is to this marriage supper. All right? what, what's coming as is, is Revelation pushes to the end is the ultimate wedding. See, God's not simply our judge. God loves us. The picture is that of the love of, uh, the, the, that a groom has for his bride. And it's a stunning change in the imagery and the topic. So I mean, we're not talking about justice, but God's love. You, you don't go to a wedding to debate world politics, but to celebrate a man and a woman who love each other, committed to each other for the rest of their lives. You know, we saw an abrupt change in our news Friday about 5 p.m. The tragedy in Nashville and everything associated with it had dominated the news all week. But then with a, an announcement from Manhattan, the news did a 180-degree flip. So there was a brand new topic. And I've not heard of Nashville since. And that's what happens here. This heavenly invitation changes the topic 180 degrees. Celebrate what God is doing for his people. Because Jesus shed his blood for us on the cross. Because the Father raised him from the dead. All who trust in him are brought into a relationship with God. It's a relationship that's best pictured for us by marriage. When God creates Eve in Genesis 2, we have the very first wedding in history. The ceremony begins as God presents the woman to Adam. And he takes those poetic vows. You know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the most romantic words in history. And what he's saying is, wow, this is the most incredible and beautiful creature I've ever seen. We are made for each other. And then after sin enters into the world, much of the Old Testament is framed as a love story. God the husband, lovingly pursuing his bride, the people of God. And we particularly see it throughout the prophets. The husband heart of God pursues the adulterous people, his adulterous people, uh, through to the end of time. And now in Revelation, that pursuit's complete. God will marry his people. So the Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. God truly loves us. Dwell on that for a moment. Being a Christian is not about being in a casual relationship with God. It's not about just being one of a multitude of people he loves. 
Rather, He loves each of us individually, intimately, and for eternity. When it comes to weddings, I can tell you when I'm the pastor, I have literally the best seat in the house, so to speak. I'm standing up, but you know. Um, And you get to see the couple up close. You get to hear their vows. You you see the tears, the nervousness, the laughter, the joy. You get to watch the reaction of the family and friends. And you get to see up close the groom's face light up when his bride enters the room. And it's often a broad smile. Sometimes there are some tears there. Um, But always, always the groom's delight in seeing his bride in a beautiful dress as she comes down the aisle. I've yet to see a groom look away to check out the weather, all right? (laughs) Now hold on to that imagery. Because that's how Jesus looks at us. We're dressed in white. We're dressed in fine linen. You know why you get dressed up for weddings? Or you should, all right? Why does a bride always look so stunning? Because we're looking forward to this great wedding, And what we'll be wearing that's yet to come. And we see our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not looking around. He's not bored. But he's with joyful tears. Looking at us. Looking at what he's made us to be. Through his death on the cross. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And his living word in us. He's made us holy and happy. And with him forever and ever. And see, that's why the praise goes on forever and ever. Because of what Jesus has done to display His glory and to display His glory in us. And for that sight, that reality, eternity will seem too short to utter all the praise that He deserves. And that's why John makes a mistake here. What he's just seen is so wonderful that he he falls down in worship. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Overcome by what he sees, he instinctively falls down to worship. But the angel rightly rebukes him. And then John makes the comment, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's he saying? All of God's word has been pointing to this moment. Pointing to making much of the glory and of the greatness of Jesus. So what about us? You know, there's so much that we enjoy about God's world. Family. Friends. Food. Flowers. It can be hard to let go of Babylon. We see that in chapter 18. We lament over how things are. But weeks like this, headlands like Nashville in Nigeria, uh, uh, a weariness from a 24-7 news cycle, heartbroken by cancer and health issues, destruction from tornadoes, Doesn't it make you just want to cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus? I mean, are you tired of living in Babylon? Well, let me tell you. One day soon, Jesus will come. 
one day soon. Babylon's going to fall. And there's going to be a great wedding. King Jesus is already triumphed. We know that. Now, not yet does the world know that. And we've got to tell them. We've got to tell them of his saving grace. We've got to tell them to worship God. As we wait. Yes, we live in a world that's filled with pain. But friends, we have a great champion. As Jesus ends his conversation with his disciples in the upper room, just prior to going to Gethsemane and then to the cross, he reminds them what we know is true. And friends, we've got to hold on to this. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, that's, that's worthy of four hallelujahs, at least. It's worthy of our singing, hallelujah, handles hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns, our champion who loves us with an everlasting love. I might just add, if you, if you are here and you don't yet know that love, turn and read John 3.16 and trust in Jesus' day. Accept his invitation to the wedding feast. And bask in the love of the Lamb now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, indeed, we pray each person here knows that saving work. That, Father, it's not that today you'd show them Jesus in all of his glory and all of his splendor and in all of his humility on a cross, dying for the sins of his people. But then, Father, raised on the third day, and ascended into heaven. And ruling from your right hand even now. Father, we, we realize that uh, the uh, evil in this world seems so strong. We get so discouraged at times. But Father, the, the, the battle is really over. Jesus is one, and we're just waiting for that final declaration. So, Father, encourage us, Lord, in a world of heartbreak and pain. Remind us, Lord, of what awaits us. Remind us of the depth of your love. Remind us of how you see us when we don't see ourselves that way. How you've loved us forever. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.